Hello and welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast with a continuing close look at the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu and your host for today. I'm very pleased to introduce my guest for the podcast, former Union Health Secretary of India K Sujatha Rao. She is an expert in the area of public health and has been closely involved in formulating national policy on areas such as vaccines, antibiotics and non-communicable diseases besides representing India on the boards of the WHO, the Global Fund and UNAIDS. Her extensive experience in government puts her at the very heart of the debate on the global coronavirus pandemic, especially questions surrounding system preparedness in India. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Rao. Thank you for inviting me. So to begin with, uh, please tell us what you think uh, is the state of the crisis in terms of the actual spread of the coronavirus infection, both in urban and rural areas. And especially, please tell us what your thoughts are on the rural spread uh, that might have happened uh, since the 21-day lockdown was announced. You know, it's a bit difficult uh, to answer because uh, we are not getting the kind of data that is required for such an analysis of making a difference between urban and rural. We know that 30% of the districts today have, the, have shown signs of this infection because some people have been found positive there. But is it still continuing to be a metro, urban, semi-urban phenomena or has it gone and penetrated into rural areas? One doesn't know till we get the locations uh, and such a division uh, analysis made by each state, you know, gender-wise, rural, urban-wise, age-wise, and so on. So that data isn't really uh, coming out. So it's difficult for me to say that uh, how urban-centric or uh, how spread out it is in rural areas. Uh, but having said that, you know, it's normally believed that since the migrants have uh, gone into rural areas, they're likely to be spreading the infection. Now, I don't know. Um, uh, it's, a, it's anybody's guess. It's your guess is as good as mine. But I was just thinking that if this is, uh, if the, as the government uh, has been saying, it hasn't penetrated into the community, it continues to be local uh, transmitted uh, infection, uh, and it is still very much in a containment phase around hot spots, then, you know, the source of infection uh, assumes importance. And it has come mainly from these middle class people who've been abroad and come back to India. Now, the probability of these middle class individuals who could have had these symptoms and this infection intermingling with informal workers and uh, so on is, is a point that we need to really think of and see whether this would have then uh, gone with them into the rural areas. So there is a class dimension also in this whole uh, infection that needs to be understood. Uh, so as I said, unless and until more data really uh, is made available, it's very difficult to say what the size of the problem is. Okay, uh, that makes sense. And we sh- I agree with you, we should wait for the data. But tell me, in, in terms of preparedness, uh, let us assume that there is maybe some spread. Uh, we don't know how much exactly in rural areas. How uh, equipped are we in terms of the public health infrastructure to deal with cases there? What, is, what are the points of contacts? Are we looking at public, uh, at uh, sort of, you know, the PHCs at the village level? Uh, what, what sort of mechanisms exist to actively, uh, you know, stop the transmission and, and to help the patients who have been 
uh, may be identified. Okay, so let's look at the medical system at all in India. Uh, you know, the it, again, it depends on how many people get infected. But uh, whatever the number be, why rural, even urban areas, the health system will be overwhelmed. I don't think we can even handle a big number, even in the urban and the metro areas. We don't have that infrastructure. We have a very weak health system. And it is there is a substitution factor going on. That means if there are a large number of people coming in, the beds have been, uh, rooms have been vacated, isolation wards have been set up. It's not because we had spare capacity in our government hospitals or private hospitals. It is that we are substituting other patients, people either for elective surgery or for non-serious cases or not for extremely acute uh, cases and so on have been substituted. So, you know, there is, uh, there is this uh, stress on the health system as such. So, uh, do you think that the, do I think that the PHCs in rural areas can handle it? No. Uh, it requires massive training, massive information dissemination to tell each worker, every doctor to be reached out to say what exactly it means and what uh, protective measures they have to take. Because you have to remember that according to the data put out on this infection, um, only about 5% may need hospitalization. 80 to 90% are really uh, uh, can treat themselves by staying at home. It's a very self-limiting disease. And so in most, even in England, they're just talking on the phone, prescribing the medicines and the medicines are being left at the doorstep and the patient is uh, left alone at home, uh, self-quarantining themselves. So, you know, it is that kind of an infection. So it doesn't need much uh, of treatment in that sense. And uh, it is possible if there is good communication with the PHCs and the district hospital specialists, they relate the uh, symptoms and they get the medication that has to be given and the person is isolated and kept separately uh, to, to, you know, get well. But those who are very serious will need, of course, uh, intensive care treatment and ventilator support and so on. And that is very acute. I mean, that's not really available everywhere. As I said, if it is at this level of a number of cases, we are lucky. But if it is, uh, you know, if it goes manifold, if it goes 20 times more, 100 times more, then we will have a real challenge on our hands. So I guess that, that was what I was going to mention to you, which is that while you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, a low percentage of those infected will need hospitalization, the problem with this particular novel coronavirus is the, you know, the rapidity with which it spreads, its infection, the rate of infection and how infectious it is rather. So if we're looking at a total large number of cases, even 5%, the concern is that even 5 or 10% of hospitalizations may be, as you pointed out, may overwhelm whatever health infrastructure is available. So in that, in that context, uh, how do you think, I mean, everybody has been asking this question, but how do you think the government's preparedness has moved in line with the progression of the disease? Do you think that that communication or integration of different levels of public health infrastructure has been there and across states and between the center? How much are we actually doing in terms of preparedness? Because we've not really heard much in terms of official messaging on that. Well, you know, to begin with, there are two levels of preparedness. One is to getting the infrastructure into shape. And that's exactly, I think, what the public health systems, both at the state and central level, are focusing right now in this lockdown period. In fact, part of the rationale for this lockdown was to say pause and take time off to try and sort out the infrastructure uh, challenges in case of a surge. 
So, you know, uh, that, that is the reason why now they placed orders for ventilators, they placed orders for PPEs. Just see in Gangaram Hospital in Delhi, a very well-known hospital, already 110 doctors are in quarantine. We cannot afford to have the few doctors and nurses that we have who can give this kind of specialized treatment to get infected and be sent off in quarantine. It's not easy to treat people in the ICU and with uh, upper respiratory or respiratory lung infections. It requires skills. It's not that any, any old doctor or any old nurse can go and treat them. They need training. So these are very specialized skills and they need to be protected at all costs. So the point here is now OPDs have been also uh, suspended in many places so that they don't uh, spread this infection to the other patients and create problems. So there is a certain uh, price that we're paying and they're trying to get this infrastructure in shape. But is the integration between and the referral systems between the lower levels to the higher levels uh, worked out, it's a big challenge because we don't have a referral system even in the best of circumstances in the best of states in our country. So this is an emergency. This is an extraordinary situation. I have faith and confidence that our people will rise to the occasion. And, you know, the massive amount of information that has gone around in the last one month nonstop on COVID, 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 almost every doctor, every nurse and every foot worker, you know, field worker, would have heard about it and would know what to do. But the point here is that they must be protected with the PPEs, which uh, which need to be put into place very quickly. But having said all this, more than the treatment aspect is uh, testing. And I think that's where our focus needs to be right now. We're really fighting the battle quite blindfolded. We really don't know uh, uh, where exactly this infection is. Uh, you know, as you know, Kerala was uh, on the top of the line till now. Now it's become the fourth state. Tamil Nadu has suddenly become second most uh, yes. number. So, you know, things are changing rapidly. And who would ever think that Dharavi would have, uh, have uh, you know, uh, people getting infected because that's a very, very closed, clustered and highly densely populated area. So, you know, things are changing so rapidly that the hotspots, are changing, the nature of the hotspots are changing, the challenges are becoming immense. And so they have to run against time in trying to see that they disrupt the transmission from going any further, doing any more damage and test madly. Unless they test, they will not be able to uh, get on top of the situation. Uh, I'm glad yesterday they did the 8,000 tests, but it has to go much faster. And I'm told they have placed orders for the tests. Uh, now, rapid kits are also coming, but as you know, they only test antibodies, which means only a person after the seventh day of infection will it uh, show that he has the infection, but still uh, something is better than nothing. So once these tests get into place uh, and people allow, and I'm a great votary and I greatly feel that the test should be made free. It's ridiculous to say 4,500 is the price of a test at this time when uh, testing is going to be our only uh, positive solution for checking this epidemic. Uh, uh, and so, because, you know, the private sector has a huge uh, outreach for collection and for testing much more rapidly than our government facilities. So I think uh, they must make it free and they must encourage people to come forward and get themselves tested, if and in those places where we have detected a positive case. So this kind of uh, saturation of the hotspots by testing must be done. And I think that's where they're going to be concentrating upon, uh, while at the same time, they're working on ramping up the infrastructure for 
the surge of patients who are likely to turn up for treatment. Okay, so you, that's really fascinating. You touched on several different things there, but a sort of a unifying theme there is in terms of the infrastructure available, including testing, but also PPE and, uh, you know, ventilators, ICU beds, all of that. Now, just given your own experience working with government and in the government, uh, do you feel that we were at least heading towards or quite close to being at the right level of capacity to be able to handle a pandemic of this size? And then one, and could you also reflect on, do we have a broader pandemic preparedness policy, which is, is real in terms of actions on the ground? Do we actually procure ventilators and stash them somewhere only to be used in a pandemic? Do we have ready ICU beds, which are maybe otherwise unused, which we can deploy in a pandemic? Do we have that excess capacity of all this infrastructure ready? Could you comment on that? No, not at all, not at all. Uh, in fact, as you might have uh, read the news uh, statement made by uh, uh, Amitabh Kant, who said a large number, I don't remember the figure, I think it was 10, 15,000 ventilators are in need of repair. So we are not even keeping the few that we have in working condition. Uh, so that, you know, and it's amazing that since we've had this uh, epidemic for the last two months, by now at least we should have got them repaired and functioning. So, you know, it's just that we live for the moment and, uh, and we, are, we don't seem to have made the plans. And what I am interested in knowing that, uh, you know, what is the Disaster Management Authority uh, really doing? Uh, because we have our act perfectly in sync for tsunamis and cyclones, as you've seen, and Tamil Nadu, Kerala. I mean, we face it and we do such a remarkable job when it's uh, an earthquake or a cyclone. But uh, we never really ever thought of uh, uh, disease spreading like this. This is the first experience I think anyone has had. And I don't think it ever occurred to anyone to make these kind of backup plans. I don't think the, the disaster management authority has this either. And that is something, uh, you know, I don't find fault with them because I myself wouldn't have thought of it either. Uh, but it's something that that's a takeaway lesson from this pandemic that we need to be prepared for such such uh, uh, surges and such uh, explosions of uh, disease. And uh, do you think that is, uh, do you get a sense from, uh, you know, your own sense of how government works and uh, do, that this will, this lesson will be learned and that there will be active planning? Because again, on the flip side, the other side of the coin is that this is something like the third or the fourth instance of a very virulent disease coming specifically out of China. And there is no guarantee that this will not happen again, given what we know about, what we know about uh, you know, MERS and SARS and all of the other things that have come out of there before this. Other countries learn. Like SARS, when SARS happened, uh, I know for a fact that China then got, called upon Harvard School of Public Health and uh, they really they learned the whole process of how to contain a disease and uh, they learned the lessons and that's one of the reasons why uh, they were able to confine it only to Wuhan and they managed it pretty well, though the caseload was quite high, but they, but they brought in the lessons of SARS and put in there. Now, in India, we've seen SARS, we've seen uh, bird flu, we've had swine flu, we've had uh, uh, no Ebola, but uh, traces of Zika in our country. And, uh, you know, so we've had all these viral infections for the last uh, 10 years, uh, 10, 12 years uh, in our country. And then we've had... Uh, tackled polio, we have, uh, of course, eradicated it. We've had HIV infection. We still continue to be the second largest uh, uh, number of HIV patients continue to be in India. So, you know, we have this experience. 
but at the same time health is given such low priority in the among the political agendas and development agendas that even this government i mean you know, even even this government which has uh, tried to say that health is important has has focused more on aishman bharat more on non communicable diseases which is true which is good uh, that's also an extremely important uh, disease burden that we cannot ignore but we still have this country still has 36% of the disease burden on account of communicable and infectious diseases so this is something that we cannot let down our guard we cannot shift and say that you know now we are done with this and let's move on to hypertension or or diabetes and forget about tb and infectious diseases and communicable diseases that option isn't there we are right now on a dual burden uh, of disease uh, mode so we have to give equal attention to public health and public health is in a very bad shape in india as you can see you know there's hardly any spokesperson of of any eminence speaking today unlike in us where you find any time you interview you interview people who are epidemiologists or microbiologists or virologists who do we have in our country only cardiologists uh, i mean very good at the profession i'm not saying no but we don't have public health leaders in our country and that is that is a big telling point on where public health really stands in our sense of priorities and understanding so i'm just hoping that this outbreak would certainly carry some lessons to our political leadership in creating a department of public health in focusing on surveillance focusing on epidemiology focusing on biostatistics focusing on on uh, on public health disciplines which are so crucial uh, for our country because they're very vulnerable our immunity levels are most about 300 million people is so low we are so poor uh in that strata of population they they always vulnerable to infectious diseases and this globalized world um infections tra- travel very rapidly so you know we have to be on guard all the time like our soldiers stand on siachen we have to be on guard like that 24 by 7 so unless and until we have uh, uh, that infrastructure in place we'll always be caught on surprise Okay, ma'am. Many thanks on that poignant note. We will leave this discussion, but thank you and uh, to our readers and listeners. Please tune in for more uh, on the coronavirus.